Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 311 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And I am excited to continue today with a string of amazing interviewees. We've got Des Linden on the show to continue this streak of amazing guests with Kara Goucher two weeks ago. And of course, Nell Rojas last week. This week, we've got Des on to talk about her book, Choosing to Run a Memoir. Of course, Des is a two-time Olympian and the 2018 Boston Marathon champion. She really needs no introduction, but I'm excited to have her on because her book is amazing and it beautifully weaves the story of her life with details and behind the scenes insight on the 2018 Boston win. And if you think you knew or know everything about that race, then you've got a lot to learn from her book particularly the fact that she wasn't even necessarily supposed to make that start line because of some health issues she was facing in 2017. We'll talk about some of those details in today's conversation, but there's so much more to it than you may know already. So I'm excited to dig in. Without further ado, let's jump in with Des Linden. Here we go. Welcome Des Linden to the Running Rogue Podcast. Des, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I was uh, admiring the intro. It's like, How's that going to sound is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, I get to cheat though, cause I get to add a full intro after the fact in editing, which okay. makes it really easy to jump in. Checks out. But speaking of that, you know, we've been working together. I get to do the editing and behind the scenes work on the, nobody asked us with Des and Kara podcast. You guys have done a behind the scenes episode on broadcasting. I wanted to start by doing a little behind the scenes on the podcast, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk about the backstory quickly on the intro music, Mm -hmm. which is a track that is called (laughs) Sassy. Sassy. I don't know that we've shared that publicly. I think it may have gotten offhandedly mentioned in a tweet or something, but Sassy is the name of the intro music, which we pulled off of a site where you can buy these things. We can buy little clips. And and so I wanted to get your perspective on the exchange around Sassy because in de- sometime in December, we'd recorded a couple of episodes. It was time to start to put them together in full form, do the editing. We needed intro music. I had sent you guys a couple of sites where you can actually go and just listen to clips that you can buy the license for. And so then I start getting clips from Kara and from you. <laughs> One of them was Sassy. Clearly, Kara had searched Sassy in the search for these, and, and it had pulled up some options. And so they were going through it. But what, what was your take? Because I think you also mentioned in one of your posts that you wanted to clown on it, but you didn't. So Yeah, just on the name. Um, it was a moment where I was like, oh, Kara and I are so different because I feel like she probably went to the pop section <laughs> um, or like she had keywords, which never occurred to my mind. I was like, oh, hip hop, like what's up in there? And they're really <laughs> bad. Uh, so I was glad that that she found that because everything I was finding was super cheesy. But naturally, if she went to the pop section, I was going to kind of poke fun of her. Like, what is this? Like, some <laughs> top 40s? Like, this is there's nothing indie about this. Um, but but it was actually I was like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. And then there was an alt version called Sassy Bones. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I can definitely make fun of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty funny, though, with the whole exchange, because then it was, are we going with this? Are we not? And you've already referenced Kara being a little bit indecisive. So I was trying to push to a decision. I think you were on a flight or something. And I was like, 
we're doing it. Are you okay, Des? <laughs> and you chimed in. You chimed in a little later and confirmed. So, yeah. so it is sassy. The intro song for nobody asked us with Des and Kara. All right. I also then want to jump in and just talk a little bit about your relationship with Kara because it does come up in the book. Although you talk more honestly about your interactions with Shalane in the book, and so people will have to read to to get that. But what? What made you connect with Kara? Because you were competitors for a long time, ran into each other, which you guys still need to share the backstory on the post-2016 Olympic trials marathon late night drinks. But what made you connect with her to want to work with her in this way? And how have you built that trust? Yeah, it's it's been a process. And honestly, our careers didn't really have that much crossover. Like it was sort of a couple years it felt like, and she was so strong on the track and I was just figuring out the marathon. Um, and then she jumped into the marathon and, and had Colt shortly after. So there was a lot of like gap time. Um, but yeah, in the book, you know, I kind of talk about this generation of runners that came after Dina and she, she was on the front of that really for the marathon. Um, although ironically I was running marathons before her, she was just at a higher level right away. And it's interesting because as a competitor with her on the NOP, um, you know, she was like enemy number one. And I feel like the clubs are sort of set up and maybe this is just my perception of it, but like against each other where you're trying to be top dog, top club. Um, and our attitude with the Hansons was always like, we're the scrappy underdogs. That team has everything they're cutting edge in a questionable way. And like, we have to beat them to prove, I don't know, this blue collar work ethic is just better or whatever it was, you know, that was kind of the mentality. And so it was always kind of set up for me to like beat the princess. And, you know, then she, she ends up being this whistleblower for NOP and just telling this crazy story. And I started to see it from such a different angle where it's like we're kind of players in this larger scheme and at times like a pawns of an agenda that we don't really even buy into but when you're a part of the team you start to buy into it and um yeah and, and I as she kind of went through this process of being the whistleblower and doing all these interviews and um I just found her to be very brave and you know and then it was like my total my opinion completely changed and um we were able to have like quick back and forths here and there behind the scenes before races and she was always super supportive and i feel like even on course like wasn't really it was we were still in the same sort of american squad in this generation that's trying to raise the bar for distance running so like there was a degree of like yeah we're actually in this together and we're not these crazy competitors where we're trying to prove that we're better than this person um, and then we had this bump in, in Atlanta and that was the first time we had like a long extended conversation. And I was like, oh, she's like, not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was actually really cool. And it was this moment where it was like all these, you know, like things that you had thought about a person or had been like kind of trained to think about them. Like, oh, this is not it at all. And, and it was refreshing for me, um, just to like have a really good interaction and be like, yeah, I need to like think about 
competitors differently. And like, we're sure like on the course, we can want to rip each other's face off. But when you step off, it's like, they're actually, there's so much respect in in what we're doing and working hard and all of that stuff. So it's been really fun. And, um, you know, I I do think she's incredibly brave and I think her book will be amazing and people will be blown away. And she, you know, it's just another um, step for her in making things better in the sport. Yeah, and it's cool. It's cool to see y'all's report build and develop as you've been working together. You alluded to this idea that she was the princess. Shalane and Kara were the princesses of American marathoning, really. And it's actually distance running and then American marathoning. And one of the themes in your book that comes out is this idea of otherness, that you were always sort of an outsider. It started as a kid playing soccer where everybody else had all the flashy gear. And then ultimately you found running where people may have had flashy gear, but you still could compete and show up because you could just run faster. (laughs) And, and then of course it progressed into your pro career where you were an outsider of sorts, where they were the white female marketable personalities and you were the up and comer scrappy one from Hanson's that nobody knew about initially, but then showed up and, and, really burst on the scene in 20 in 2011. So speak to that theme in the book and how it's played out through your career. And also, do you still feel that way to some extent? Yeah, I think it's, you know, a lot of just my perception and maybe it's not even reality, but it's this sort of mentality I've given myself so that I can have a reason to say, I'll show you, you know? And it's, uh, I always think of the, the Michael Jordan clip where it's like, yeah, everyone believed in him. He was the greatest. He's on the pedestal. And then he's, you know, like someone says one thing that kind of rubbed in the wrong way. And it's like, and I took that personally. Um, and you just find these reasons to go out and, and prove people wrong, which is kind of silly. But I do think that, um, you know, that was real as a kid. Like my parents would drive us you know, 45 minutes to be on a better soccer team. And it was in a wealthier neighborhood because that's where the best coaches were. And um, so it it was definitely something that happened and it was rooted as a kid. And I, I think when I went to Hanson's, I fit right in. I plugged in and was like, okay, like this is where I belong. But then I found other ways to, you know, there's always someone better. There's always someone that has more. Um, so it was easy to kind of villainize like the Nike program or the people who they just look like they were born to be great runners. And I was like figuring it out and going to work my way there. Um, I don't, I kind of, I always settled into that. And even now, like I do feel like an outsider mainly because of my age. (laughs) So like when I'm running against all the younger kids in the marathon now, I'm like, yeah, I don't really necessarily fit in here anymore. So it's just another way to be like, okay, how can I, um, make this my own space and what's going to, you know, make me, how, how can I find my people? And that's just generally been more the masses that are trying to find out how good they can be. And that makes way more sense now, um, as well. So it's like resonating with that crowd, which I think is really great. Anyhow, to have a, a pro that tends to resonate with the masses, or at least feel closer to that group. Um, it just makes our side of running more accessible to the participants and the everyman runner out there. Well, I think your mantra from that came out of 2018 Boston, the keep showing up mantra was so relatable to people that now we, we think of you as one of us because 
for most of us, that's how we have to do it. Just keep putting one foot in front of another. Another thing I thought that was interesting and fascinating about the book was, you know, you're introverted. I'm introverted. I probably make assumptions about you because of that. But I also know you're someone who's always kept your cards close. And in the book, you show a lot of cards that you haven't really shown. I don't feel like you've ever been inauthentic, but you've maybe not told the whole story for reasons that I understand. And so in the book, you kind of show those cards. I think maybe you still held a few back, but that's okay. And so speak to that piece of just how running has helped you be your more authentic self. At one point, there's a quote from the book where you say it was basically putting distance between who I was running, help you put distance between who you were and who other people told you to be. So speak to that and how it has allowed you to be yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think with the book, it was this opportunity to dig deeper into the stories. And I think, um, you know, running is where the stories happen. It's where they're created. And again, it's using platforms to connect with the masses. And I think just kind of demystifying the pro end of the sport is something I have always been very interested in. And I've been able to share snippets of that with social media and, you know, speaking engagements and things like that. But this was a chance to reflect on a, a lot of stuff and um, just long form story tell uh what I'm about and you know those things all get processed while processed while you're out on the run and then you know I think readers are really bright and they know when you're holding stuff back and everyone knows the story of the Boston win which is you know I've done a million podcasts and talked about that for plenty of uh, opportunities and um but this was about giving people the rest of the story and I had to, you know, have some separation from that race and really make sure I told it right. And and I think it came out on the page that is, this is the really authentic version. And um, yeah, it wasn't lack of uh, truth prior. It was more processing and figuring out the exact way that um, I wanted to tell the story and and share it authentically in in a true way that um, wouldn't hurt my career or anything of that sort. Uh, but right, yeah. So and there's a lot to it that we didn't know, which makes it even more satisfying. We we'll, you dig into all of it in the book. We'll get to some of it today. Before we get to talking about 2018 Boston, though, I want to talk a little bit about training. So. This is a coaching podcast for the most part, so I want to dig into this piece. You joined the hand since you became a marathon runner. You talk a lot about their approach, labeling it this idea of generating cumulative fatigue in order to be able to withstand the grind that is the marathon. So when you joined the program, how did their approach differ from what you had done in the past? I know obviously you were doing more mileage, but beyond that, what, what were the other components that were different? Yeah, it was heavy, heavy volume and, you know, a lot of pace work where you're just dialing in um, marathon pace and really trying to understand what that feels like. And if the splits are taken away, can you can you still just lock in? So it was more of a feel than anything. 
um, is interesting because as a high schooler, I had four different coaches in four years as a collegiate. Um, at a coaching change halfway through. So I had done a number of different systems and Walt was fairly strength oriented, um, but he's, you know, he's primarily a track guy and uh, got really great 5k, 10k results. And I think that was the balance of um, speed, strength, you know, a number of different things. And then switching to the Hansons, um, you know, that was a big adjustment. And I, I think one of the biggest things for me was consistency. Um, when I joined the team, it was the first time I ran year round. Like I in the in college, I would go home and be like, I'd take the summer off. And I was used to playing soccer as a kid. I could get in shape in about three weeks and and be on the varsity. So that's just kind of like the tactic I took. I was suffer for three weeks and then um, be good to go for the rest of the season. So the consistency with the Hansons was was different for me, which is kind of silly. It's really a, a training tactic that they had that was different it was just me approaching it more seriously at that point as you talk about in the book at some point their system stopped working for you and as you think about the early years of that the success in 2011 making the 2012 olympic team at what point did you start to wonder is this right for me is this too much when did you have those questions start to pop into your head? There were a handful of times when I wondered if it was still the right system. And, um, you know, after my second marathon, I was at the trials in 08, hit the wall. And, I, and then the next time we started getting ready for another marathon, it was the exact same program, you know, like, um, how is this going to get me more prepared than last? It was the exact same thing I did. Um, and then they tack on a few more miles. Well, you'll be stronger through this. And so that was one time where I really considered it. And I just thought I had to kind of wait it out and stick with it. Um, and then I think the same program kind of kept rolling in and I would see success with it. But I also, I felt like at times I made it my own, like I could approach these workouts and like, maybe it's the first half is just go out a little bit too hard. And it's like a thing you could do within the program. Um, so I made it adaptable in little, little ways. And then there was the in-between stuff where after marathon programs, you could go, okay, well, I want to do a speed seg segment. I want to do an indoor track season. Um, and you could personalize it that way. Like, okay, I'm still going to touch on these other training um, areas, but just not within this marathon block. So I felt like I was tinkering with it and personalizing it along the way. And then really in 2000. 17 after that marathon buildup for Boston, um, I was just, I was forced to reevaluate because I just hit a wall. Um, and, and through my own mistakes, I felt like I tried to muscle through after that. And my tactic just buying into their coaching was let's do more, let's add more volume, let's take a shorter break this time. Um, and so I was going to power my way through or outwork everyone else. And uh, it, that doesn't really work. Yeah. And the, the thing we didn't know is that you didn't follow their plan leading into the 2018 win because you couldn't. You were diagnosed in, I think it was August, late summer with severe hyperthyroidism, had to go to the urgent care. They told you, you might be days away from going into a coma because your body wasn't producing the hormones that it needed to perform basic functions. 
talk about that situation and how terrifying it was. It was very bizarre because, <laughs> you know, we, I spent so many years getting myself really tired and then figuring out how to manage fatigue and run hard while fatigued. So I was very good at it. And I just learned to dial down the concept of fatigue. And then it just crept up in these other ways. And so it was never really like a training thing or a running thing. Like that was going poorly, but eventually I was just, I, I just need to hit pause because I'm running, I run like 112 and a pancake flat uh, half marathons. Like this is not, not good. Um, so I need to take a break. And when I took the break from running is when all these other sort of symptoms started popping up and it was, um, like being detached from my own body and sort of watching this other person exist. And that was really terrifying because I felt like I, like my authentic self didn't have control over the situation. I was watching someone else operate in my body and I was powerless to do anything about it. Um, and then it just kept getting worse and worse. And, um, so like my takeaway was hormones are absolutely wild. <laughs> like you can be a totally different person. Like I, I think I'm pretty optimistic. I think, um, I'm really, uh, have a lot of gratitude about my situation in life, but when those hormones were off, it was really depressed and apathetic and, um, I was a person who just, if I didn't wake up the next day, I would have been totally content with that, you know, as the, the person who was driving the body, but the prisoner in the back of my mind knew all these other things about myself. Like, no, no, I, I do like life. Like, why is this happening to me? Um, and then we just added in a pill and it slowly turned around and it's just powerful stuff. You're having physical symptoms too couldn't regulate your body temperature, losing hair, obviously having fatigue and not feeling like you could move, even get up the stairs. You, you described it that way in the book. You were resistant to taking the medication. Why? <laughs> um, probably just being stubborn, really, in hindsight. But, you know, it's a medication that had a lot of, has a lot of baggage around it. And I think it's been, a, you know, a center of, are people abusing this for, for, for performance enhancement? And frankly, like I remember having a conversation with a couple of running guys probably four months prior and being like, yeah, well, of course, like they're, you know, these athletes are, are abusing it and they're doing it to stay light or they're doing it to enhance performance. And, um, I can't remember what athletes, we, what people we were talking about because it was just sort of like this rumor drug that, you know, if someone started performing well, well, they must be on thyroid medication. And until you're in the situation and um, educate yourself on it, it's hard to understand the difference. But then once you're there and you, you're looking at numbers and you're talking to people and getting help, um, it becomes very clear. You described there was basically a moment waking up where you knew you had to take it. What was that experience? Yeah, I think the fatigue aspect of it was sleeping absurd amounts. And um, I think back about it, it's like flying to Japan in that first uh, night of or day of where you have, you know, it's 2 a.m. in the morning at home, but you have to fight through to combat the uh, jet lag. 
and then you get yourself on the schedule, but everything in your body knows you should be in bed. And that was just how I felt um, all the time. You know, that was like, it was like existing at 2 a.m. jet lagged and, and I would sleep, I would sleep really deep very often in this one particular night I woke up um just with a huge deep breath like it was like I was gasping for air and I realized I was in such a deep sleep that I wondered if you know things were just shutting off like is this if I go back to sleep am I ever going to wake up um scenario and and I that it was scary that was the first time I um was happy that I wasn't apathetic towards life and I tried to fight sleep. Um, but I knew when I, when I did wake up, which I did obviously. And I, it, that was the moment it was like, this isn't a thing that you, it's not a performance enhancer. Don't be stubborn, just help yourself. And, and that's what I had to do. Yeah. You want to live. I mean, they were telling you, you could have ended up in a coma if you hadn't started taking it. How do you think you got there? Do you blame the training approach? I, I mean, I think the tactic is, there's something to it. You know, I think that I had a lot of success because of it, but it wasn't sustainable. And I think um, it's the interesting part about the team structures is you, in that structure, you had to fit to the training. The training wasn't ever going to be adjusted or tweaked. And even when it was, it was me on my own kind of tinkering with the block that was set. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't point fingers. It's a little like what I had the femur fracture. There was things that I think might not have been correct, but I wasn't vocal enough to say, Hey, we need to adjust or make the decision to change the training or change my environment. I just kept trying to power through, um, you know, and it's, I'd say it's 2020, but I think there's something about cumulative, cumulative fatigue leading to chronic fatigue. Um, and that's a whole science thing that, you know, I'm sure I could dig into, um, recovery and, you know, just all of that component of training and adaptation and so on and so forth, particularly as you start, start aging. So, um, you know, something that I've changed since, because I do think that that's just obviously where I was. Have you listened to the, uh, Andrew, Andrew Hubberman podcast? Uh, he had Andy Gulpin on and it's all about, um, I mean, I guess it's about strength and conditioning and, and improvement. They're they're fantastic. My coach now sent it to me, and it was a really great concept on adaptation and fatigue. And you know, when you're just doing work for the sake of doing work, but you're not adapting, and I, I think it's fantastic. So I'd recommend everyone yeah, okay. to do that. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately we we have to balance the stress and the rest. You know, as Brad Stolberg says, growth comes from stress plus rest, right? And so I, I see tweets, you know, people saying, well, you should be falling asleep in your cereal bowl if you're in marathon training. And personally, I reject that idea. You need to be polarizing your training so that not only you're balancing recovery with the harder work, but also doing it in the context of your life. You know, yeah. people have jobs, busyness, stress. You can only do as many miles as you can recover from. That's different for an elite athlete who's focusing on it versus somebody who has a day job and a family. But you have to consider that balance because we only grow in the long term if we can get the right balance. And you were out of balance, clearly. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back from that, 
you decide I'm not doing another cycle of the Hanson's program, working with your new coach, Walt, was he working with you at that point? He was not. Um, I just started putting things together that I thought made sense. And I had talked to him over the summer and he was kind of in tune with what was going on. And he helped me um, get a number of doctors names up in Charlevoix and Northern Michigan. And uh, he's a guy I could always bounce ideas off of, but we weren't formally working together. I was just kind of piecing together things that I felt like I needed at that time. So you're following your intuition essentially. Yeah. That point, what did it look like? How did that compare to prior marathon cycles? Yeah, I mean, I cut back mileage immediately. That was like the first thing, and um, started working on quicker stuff. Just you know, volume wasn't the key. It was just getting in turnover and trying to find um, any form of speed, air quote speed, at that point. Um, and then I thought it's kind of funny. I think I only did one twenty mile long run that whole build up. So. It was guided a lot by feel, which was something that I wasn't really, you know, we we did everything by pace and uh, checking a box on the schedule of the mileage that was for the day. So it was very different. Um, but it was rewarding. It was fun. And it was like, it, it made me think and make decisions on the fly and really get into, in tune with how my body felt and how I felt working hard. Um, at different ranges and and just effort overall, not just pace. And you get to Boston and you're there because you want to represent at Boston, but you're in your head, you're thinking, I don't know if I'm even going to finish this race. I don't know if I'm prepared. I don't know if I should finish, if it's healthy for me to finish. So talk about that question. And I know you were talking with Ryan who said, "You, you can do this, go for it. And you had John Ball, your physio there, giving you parameters on you know, how to do it safely. But what was that mindset of just not knowing if you could even get to the finish line? I think it was probably one of the best things that could happen, which is kind of funny. But so many of the Bostons I had gone into prior after 2011 was, how do I win? How do I cover moves? Uh, You know, it's decision making to have a shot for, for a win. And this was like, there was all these other things going on that were stressful, but the race itself wasn't stressful. It was just, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. And um, in talking with John, even before we, like, well before we got to the start line, he's like, you know, marathon training is not especially healthy when you're at your level. Like, you're grinding, you're doing absurd amounts of, of work, and your body's already off kilter. So and then you get to race day and you just do it all over again. So he's like, you know, make a smart decision if you want more to your career. If you don't, we can get you ready for this one one race, um, but it might be detrimental to to your future as a marathoner. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was making those decisions on the fly. And then uh, as we saw the weather a lot, a lot changed because the pace wasn't going to be as hard. Um you wondered what the effort would be. Would it be more with the conditions because it was so stressful because it was cold and rainy or would the pace allow you to, to not beat yourself up as much? And there's all of these different questions um, that weren't typical of race day, but ultimately they were all about just covering the distance, not trying to win the race. So um, there was there was not that much pressure on the race aspect of it. Yeah. It's interesting. I think sometimes 
people have to let go of their goals for them to come back to them. You know, sometimes we get so aggressive aggro about getting something that we overdo it. We, you know, we're too hyped up or nervous or particular about doing every little thing and we overdo it. Sometimes when you let go, the pressure's off and then it comes back around. Yeah. In this case, it came back around. (laughs) So I want to talk a little, so I want to get into race day. I thought it was fascinating where you were talking about, and John Ball observed this, you know, as everybody else is getting more nervous for obvious reasons, going to the start line of Boston, but also with all the crazy conditions, you're in the bus, you're looking outside, you're thinking, this is nuts. Everybody else is getting more nervous. Meanwhile, Des is getting more calm listening to Johnny Cash on the bus as as he head out to the start line. Just speak to that mentality. Is that normal for you? Or was it just a combination of, hey, no pressure, I don't even have to finish today, plus it's going to be a crazy mess out there anyway, so whatever. Yeah, I think it was just the melting of the pressure. And I really felt like my career was on the line. We talk about the outsider theme and, you know, um, my place in the sport. I always figured that as soon as I had a bad marathon, everyone would go, see, it was a fluke. She wasn't really that good. You know, like as soon as I had a bad one, it would be, well, you're not, you're actually not that good. You've been lucky this whole time. Um, and and that's what I thought was going to happen after that race. And the weather to me was like, okay, there'll be a reason besides me being a fluke or lucky that I can have a bad race because a bunch of people are going to have really tough races. Time won't matter. Um, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And maybe I can still have a career after this. And that's pretty wild. I feel like at that point I probably would have been okay, but, um, I know the sport is it's tough, man. Like you get people all the time telling you what you're not worth and why you're not that great. And there's all kinds of people that will tell you, you can't do it. And why, what you did wasn't that good and all of those things. And, and that, you know, that's, that's what I was thinking when, when I have this bad race, um, what are those voices going to be? And so the weather was like, well, it can just be the weather and it's going to happen to a lot of people. The weather is, <laughs> I love the, that quote that ends with be the storm. I think you were actually the storm that day. <laughs> you also overcame other obstacles. The weather was obviously nuts. I was in Boston that day. I wasn't racing, but I was on the sidelines cheering and obviously we all know the cold, the wind, the rain, all of that, but you missed a bunch of bottles. (laughs) There was other, there are other things that went wrong. I mean, almost nothing went right in the buildup, the weather, the race day, maybe the weather you could call going right for you. But how do you think you overcame those cumulative obstacles to get to the finish line first? I think most of it was just being moment by moment, you know, I wasn't trying to win. I wasn't, I was trying to get to 20 K. And then in that process, it was this moment where I could do something for Shalane. And that was a little success. And it made me stop thinking about how miserable I was. And it got me a little closer to my end, my end goal, which, you know, in my mind might've been 20 K. And then after that, you know, I was helping out Molly, who was on the front chasing down Doska it's like there's there's no way like she she can't run out there all the way to the finish line and and be okay and 
again, in, in doing that, the effort finally felt right. And, and then I turned around and, you know, seeing if she's tucked on my shoulder and, and every, the whole group splintered and is like, oh, I might be one of the strongest people here, you know, and that was the first, it, it got me so deep into the race where I wasn't worried about how I felt. I was just doing these other tasks. And then when I really started thinking about racing, um, it wasn't that much left. <laughs> All I have to do is hold them off. Yeah. And the book is beautifully written intermixing chapters that tell stories of little bits of the race with your history. And so you get to, to see it play out and you're always waiting for that next moment in the race. But that was one thing that struck me reading those, each of those moments that you share the vignettes from the race itself. It's just, it seemed like you were so present. You mentioned that, that you were just living in the moment, but also and it's easy when you're writing it down later to make it look like I had all these thoughts going in my head and they were coherent. But it, I believe that they were. I believe that that was really the headspace you're in. And and so I think a lot of people could benefit from finding that type of headspace in their races. So what advice would you give to be present inside of a marathon to not get ahead of yourself, to run the mile you're in, as they always say? Yeah, it's sort of kind of counterintuitive, but having having a plan. Um, I think that my plan started to develop as the race started to develop, but you know, I knew I was getting to 20k. That was the plan. And those little things, you know, fell into place that gave me something to do. Um, but when when you have it all down and it's not like hit this time or bust, it's just process oriented things that that you can do along the way. So you feel like you're having little successes and, you know, getting your fluids correctly. And if you don't get them from the cups and that's, I guess, for the elites only, but, um, you know, focusing on that stuff and it just, all of this, the planning eliminates the bargaining, I feel like, because when we don't have the next thing that we, the, the next objective, you start to lean on how do I feel and use that to guide your next choice. Um, and when we start bargaining, it's usually it, it's much easier to settle or throw in the towel for a little bit or sandbag. And so, yeah, just you know, having a game plan and um, objectively focus on on each next objective was kind of you know my mindset out there. And then you did it. You had the hug at the finish line. The awkward. I, I've never thought of it as an awkward hug, but you know, I was listening to your interview with Kara and you've said people have mentioned that it's awkward, but, but I just thought of it as, Hey, does this celebrating with the people that she loves. And so I want to talk about that and your support crew for that race, especially it was Josh, your agent, your husband, Ryan, John Ball, your physio, Natalie, your sister, the closest crew. And I think for anybody doing any, trying to hit any goal, they need to have a good support crew. So just speak to your support crew, why they were so key in getting you to that moment and why it meant so much sharing it with them. Yeah. I think we think of what, first of all, is running is not a team sport, individual sport, and that's just not accurate. Um, and secondly, recently, it just seems like team is about colorways and brand logos and for me throughout my career it was really important to kind of pick up mentors and people who could 
help me and I could bounce ideas off of that were in totally different parts of the sport. And, um, you know, Mary Kate was another person in that crew that helped me out a ton and they all added different things. And I was able to have real honest conversations with them. And it's, it's sort of a weird thing, but like the people I'm closest to are the people that I can fight with, you know? And it's like, there's no, like, let's shelve this so feelings aren't hurt and we don't, you know, ruin the relationship. It's like the relationship's strong because we fight things out and then we solve them and then we're still friends. Um, and that was all of those people. And, you know, they supported me for years and years. And yeah, it was, um, I, I got to the finish line and I, I didn't feel, I was the most removed from my team, the Hansons that I had ever been, but I'd never felt like I had a stronger team supporting me than at that finish line in that day. Um, it was, it was sad that, uh, the brothers, Kevin and Keith, you know, we, we didn't have that moment because it was such a, a big thing in my career, um, from 2011, you know, up until 17, like we're, we're chasing this together. And that was something that would have been nice to share with them as well. Yep. Well, it was beautiful to watch and beautifully written. I've got, you've got a timeline today, so I got to wrap, but I want to finish with a little bit of an existential question. If you don't mind, one of my favorite sections of the book is when you talk about your affinity for Joan Didion and the commencement address you quote in the book that helped you recover and and work through the injury post London Olympics, I think is pretty awesome and has a lot of life lessons in it. So we're going to wrap. I'm going to read the quote. I want to get your take on it, how you apply it in your life. She said in a 75 commencement address at UC Riverside, I'm not telling you to make the world better because I don't think that progress is necessarily part of the package. I'm just telling you to live in it, not to just endure it, not to just suffer it, not just to pass through it, but to live in it, to look at it, to try to get the picture, to live recklessly, to take chances, to make your own work and take pride in it, to seize the moment. Clearly seize the moment in Boston on that day. But what, what do you take from that quote? And how does it change how you live? Yeah, that, I mean, it hits in a lot of different ways, but I think it's just you know, being brave enough to try to extend yourself and being vulnerable or taking chances, you know, in a much, much less succinct way, it's, um, you got to crack some eggs to make an omelet and it's going <laughs> to be messy at times, but you're going to have some, some really good things that can come out of it. So, um, yeah, I like the way she said it much better though. <laughs> Fried eggs or <laughs> to make double fried <laughs> eggs. Well, Des, thanks so much for the book. Amazing. Everybody should go get it and really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having me. It's a blast. Des Linden, everyone. Again, an amazing book. Go pick it up. Choosing to run a memoir by Des Linden and Bonnie Ford. Thanks to Des for joining me. Thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.